This is KipSpeak, a platform dedicated to fostering conversation about technological developments in the legal and business sectors. As our world evolves during the COVID pandemic and beyond, we hope this podcast series excites and prepares you for the future of law. Hello and welcome back to KipSpeak. My name is Jun, the Vice President of Events of KIPS. In this episode, I'm joined by a very special guest, Zena Menes, the co-founder of Clausebase, a legal tech company that specializes in contract drafting software that allows next-generation lawyers to interactively fine-tune the automation of complex legal documents. Thanks so much for joining us today, Senna. Um, so before we get started, could you just please tell us a little bit about yourself, Clausebase, and how legal tech in general helps to alleviate the pressure on lawyers to reduce their costs? Thank you very much, June, for having me. So, yes, my name is Senna Menes. I am a former lawyer, used to work in the Brussels office of the international law firm DLA Piper, where I worked in their intellectual property and technology department. Before that, I was a law student at the University of Leuven in Belgium, uh, and I also did an LLM postgraduate program at King's College. Um, with clause base, essentially what we're trying to do is uh, we're trying to speed up the process of creating legal documents. So um, typically we would fall under the umbrella of a document automation company. Um, the, the approach that we take is a little bit different to most incumbents. So usually document automation starts from this uh, template-based approach where you have your template pre-constructed uh, in Microsoft Word, and then you either low-code or no-code it into a list of questions. And then you can essentially generate documents at high volume uh, by answering a list of questions. And, and we realize that that has its uses, uh, which is why ClauseBase also offers this kind of mode. Uh, but our approach is different. Um, one of the pains that I experienced as a lawyer is that, you know, there's a lot of bespoke drafting that needs to be done. And so templates are inherently not very much suited to this kind of bespoke drafting. Uh, and, and they don't really conform to the process that is that is uh, that, that goes on there. What clause base does is it approaches the document automation process, not from a pre-constructed template, but from the individual building blocks that make up that template. And so in ClauseBase, you can essentially create a library of clauses that you can enhance with all sorts of intelligence and, and all sorts of flexibility. Uh, and then you can essentially create documents by simply stacking clauses on top of each other like building blocks. And you can, at, at that point, once you've created a document, you can still transform it into a questionnaire uh, as you would for traditional document automation, but it's not the, the be all end all. And that's in our view, more accurately reflects the sort of process that um, a lot of uh, lawyers face when they're drafting legal documents, which is, you know, if you have a template, perfect. Typically, it's going to be around 40 to 60% of what you actually need uh, when you're doing bespoke work or uh, from time to time, you, won't sim you simply won't have a template because the work that you're doing is, is, is so very unique to the client. Um, and in that case, what you'll do is you'll take that document, which is either a precedent or a template, uh, you'll have 40 to 60% of what you need. And then it's a sort of arts and crafts game where you take your base document and you just start 
copying and pasting clauses from different documents that have different nuances that, that fits what you need in that particular um, file for that particular client. And there's a lot of cleanup work involved there. And there's a lot of work involved in finding the right clauses and making sure that they are consistent, both in content and in style. And really, that's a pain that we felt as lawyers that wasn't quite solved yet. Uh, and that's what we set out to solve with ClauseBase. That sounds great. So with the increasing pressure for lawyers these days to do more with less and clients attaching more and more importance to ways in which a firm leverages technology to do so, um, there is a definitely a greater demand for automation companies like ClauseBase. So today we'd like to discuss the imbalance between the time spent and the value added by lawyers and how much competitive advantage there is still to gain here for law firms. So Senna, could you just give our listeners an explanation as to what this is? So one of the first things that you should realize is that the billable hour is still the dominant pricing model for law firms, right? So as a law firm, client gives you a, a task to, let's say, draft a contract for them, um, and you will inform them of their of your rates, but you will not uh, set out a fixed fee. There are, of course, exceptions to that. Uh, a lot of uh, evolution has already been occurring on the front of alternative fee arrangement like fixed fees, but typically, you know, there's, there's still this um, dominant approach for of the billable hour model where you just say okay this is our hourly rate and at the end of the the process we'll let you know exactly how many hours we put into this and so uh, it's curious to see that there is this imbalance between time spent and value added as you so uh, so neatly uh, summarized it a lot of work is often done by lawyers um, which doesn't really directly correlate to the amount of value that's uh, being created. And so uh, a lot of firms have a sort of a, a small army of junior associates who do a lot of the, the necessary, but unfortunately often menial work. And it's, it's that what's being charged to the client, right? So a, a partner will in their head have a very good idea of what this document needs to look like and will have formulated that uh, opinion in, in a fairly short amount of time. But then it's still a matter of actually putting all of that down on paper. Um, and that needs to be done by, like I said, an, an, an army of junior associates. Uh, and so there's this disproportionate amount of work being put into just battling Microsoft Word and making sure that the expertise of the law firm is being reflected in the document. But the actual exercise of, you know, exercising legal creativity is something that has happened in maybe like 10 minutes to, to a couple of hours, so to speak. And this is actually reflected in quite a bit of opinion blogs and things like that on, on the state of the legal services sector. Uh, one source that I can definitely recommend is the Creation Production Divide by uh, Ja Bosman and TGO Consulting, which is his, his consulting firm to uh, large international law firms. Uh, definitely also take a look at the book Death of a Law Firm, which in my opinion grants a very interesting view of um, the current state of of the legal services sector and how it is uh, probably going to be evolving over the next couple of years. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. So now moving on to the questions, based on the things you've just identified, it seems fair to state that the revenue derived from low value production work is what keeps law firms afloat today. But from your point of view as a leader in legal tech industry, do you expect this to be the same in the future? Yeah, it's a, a very good question. So. 
in my opinion, there won't be a race to the absolute bottom. There is still the matter of tiers in law firms. There is still uh, different firms doing different things, having different priorities, interacting with their clients in different ways. Um, the average high street law firm, for example, simply doesn't do the same things as a large international firm does, has different clients, has different priorities. That said, I do believe that within these different tiers, there will be a sort of increased competition on price, especially because in a lot of different cases, the um, clients, the customers of, of, of legal services are essentially purchasing a black box, right? You don't really know the quality of the work that is being delivered. Um, you have a vague indication especially if you're, you're if you're not legally trained yourself but you have a vague indication based on you know the reputation of the law firm and and maybe work that they have done in the past for for similar files um and so given that a lot of the law firms currently in, in a lot of different segments of the market are virtually interchangeable i do think that within these segments within these tiers there is going to be a shift to uh, more competition on price. Uh, there's also already been a trend of commoditization, which is essentially, you know, uh, the phenomenon where multiple different firms can do multiple different types of work. And so it doesn't really make sense to go with the large international firm when the value that is being added for the same work by, by a smaller firm is, is identical or, or maybe even uh, greater for, for a much smaller price. So that's those are all elements at play. Those are all uh, playing a role in how the, the legal services industry is going to evolve, how their work is going to be done, but also, of course, how their services are going to be priced. Uh, and I also think that the outside competition should not be ignored either. So it used to be that law firms had essentially free reign on the legal services market, a sort of monopoly, if you will. Uh, I think that with new alternative legal service providers popping up with the rules and restrictions regarding access to, you know, the, the opportunity to, to deliver legal services being uh, lifted in some ways uh, with the advent of the, the big four uh, companies having more and more developed legal branches to their business. I think those are all going to be playing a role on how the legal services industry is going to be evolving in the next couple of years. Thank you, Senna. So based on what you've just said, it seems likely that law firms would have to adapt and shift their business model towards that of the creative skills which lawyers utilize, more so than their ability to produce generic documents or type up contracts. How would you envision it would affect the profitability of law firms that rely heavily on clients paying long billable hours? Yeah, it's a very good question. So I think there are quite a few challenges. I think um, it shouldn't be, those challenges for law firms shouldn't just be, be brushed away. Legal tech is obviously a very good tool to create change, to adopt new innovative models. Uh, but the typical adage that is being used on, on that front is people process technology in that order. And so legal tech is only one part of the equation, right? There's a lot that needs to happen in order for a firm and, and even the industry at large to consider this new type of approach to focusing more on, for example, automating certain manual uh, tasks or 
certain rote tasks. And so, yeah, the, the people will have to be on board. And I think that's uh, typically also a problem when, you when you're working with professionals who are trained to see risks. There may, of course, be less of an incentive to, to actually uh, open themselves up to risks and, and create this, this new innovative approach. Uh, typically, in my opinion, lawyers tend to follow the, the follow the leader model on that front. So there's rarely ever a desire to be the first through the breach. But if they notice that something is working, then in a lot of different cases, they will be uh, more readily able to jump. Uh, and then, yeah, the, the process is, of course, the second part of that equation of the people process technology uh, issue is maybe even more challenging in the sense that this is something that lawyers have been doing for years and years. They've, they've always focused on uh, the billable hour as the dominant model for pricing. Um, and so it's, it's going to take a serious amount of time and it's also going to take a serious amount of thought as to how to transform the processes that are currently in place in a law firm, how, how clients are billed, how certain services are delivered, um, and, and to, to see how they could be better servicing their clients, but also better pricing their, their services so that there is a significant value add. Now, this doesn't need to be a situation where the law firm or the services decrease in profitability. I firmly believe that you know, the value that is being added to uh, a lot of clients means that the, the time that, that is spent on that and, and essentially the, the high rates that clients typically pay um, uh, make it worth it. So, so the the value that is that is there mean that the clients don't have that much problems paying uh, for the typically expensive work of legal service providers. That said, um, with automation, that time could be cut down quite a bit. Let's say that you're automating a employment agreement, right? Let's say that you would typically spend. Um, a certain amount as a, as a client on tasking your, your law firm to create an employment agreement. Now, ordinarily, the law firm would price that piece of work at the time spent creating that employment agreement. But if we could find a way to automate that, it's not that the value becomes less. It's not that the client feels that they should pay less because the document wasn't completed in the course of five hours, but it was in the course of, of 20 minutes, for example. Um, so I think that firms who consider this issue as being um, you know, one way they could leverage a fixed fee price to gain a bigger return on investment on, on the price at the, the, the time that they're spending could actually be a valuable evolution both for the clients who receive their, their material much faster, receive their, their work much faster, and who may also have, um, in some cases, less to pay, but also for the law firms who can essentially earn the same amount of revenue on much less time spent. And so there could be multiple different projects, there could be more work done in less time, and, and that's only going to be increasing profitability. Thank you for that. Yeah, as a law student myself, I think it's certainly a thought-provoking consideration that we all have to take into account, especially given the whole myths about legal tech replacing um, future generation of lawyers. Moving this discussion to um, KIPS itself, we aim to equip our members, many of whom are aspiring solicitors themselves, with the tools to succeed in a future encompassed by technology. Um, and it's not much of a secret that law firms invest heavily into innovation and the development of legal technology. But there seems to have been a dichotomy within the legal industry itself, where some law firms on the one hand focuses heavily on legal innovation 
And on the other hand, there are law firms that don't focus as much on the use of legal technology. So do you see a real and urgent need for law firms to invest in training our generation of lawyers to prepare them for a future in which lawyers' creative skills are far more important than the ability to perform repetitive low-value tasks? Yeah, absolutely. I think this draws back to the distinction that I made earlier where, you know, there are different tiers of law firms. There's different types of law firms with different types of clients doing different types of uh, work. So I think you should always consider that backdrop. But uh, definitely, you know, the world and, and technologies especially is always evolving. So it, it would be silly to consider the fact that, you know, the, the way that we worked 10 years ago still works today. Um, you often hear stories, for example, of partners who still dictate emails or dictate legal advice, for example, to someone who then writes it down for them. Obviously, that's not a practice that's going to be able to continue in the future. Um, the question whether law firms should invest in the uh, training of their their junior lawyers or whether that is something that lawyers should do by themselves or try to you know uh, create ways to create this sort of competitive advantage and to to build themselves as 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 great legal service practitioners is is another question entirely obviously my preference would be that uh, law firms do the utmost to support their their own uh, lawyers and especially their junior lawyers who who of course are going to be uh, of course we would like to be in, in in this branch for as long as possible but I think we should also be realistic and I think that um, you know this is not super high on the agenda for a lot of law firms just yet but there is a lot that lawyers can already do themselves um, and I think now we're, we're sort of at this crossroads where if you're able to leverage technology in a way that you know significantly increases your value as a young lawyer. I think there's a lot that you can do there to just um, boost your own employability, for example. Um, there used to be a time, especially when I was still a student, where commercial awareness was the number one thing that lawyers had to focus on, right? Of course, legal acumen was was uh, a given you still needed to be especially sharp on on the legal front but that was more like step zero uh, and to really distinguish yourself from the pack so to speak you know lawyers were counseled to create commercial awareness and while i think that is still important and that is still being counseled today uh, as far as as i'm aware i think tech savviness is taking an equally important, if not more important place there. Um, and I think that a lot of young lawyers nowadays should consider the fact that um, this can also yield a lot of different benefits. Like if you're if you're already capable of thinking along with certain processes and, and suggesting different ways of improving processes, um, then of course, uh, within a very short amount of time, you're, you're going to make yourself indispensable to, to any uh, legal service provider, law firms included, of course. And um, yeah, so that that's, I think, is, a, is something that a lot of junior lawyers can do by themselves, uh, maybe as a sort of alternative to um, to whatever training they receive from their their own law firm or maybe as an augmentation of what they receive to um, to that uh, to that which is offered by the law firm. Thank you for that. So just to follow up, you've mentioned briefly in the introduction of Clausebase as being a no code platform. 
Um, so the question I'm just gonna ask right now is something that a lot of our audiences question in some of our events themselves. So do you think lawyers should be expected to learn how to code? Or on the other hand, are legal tech softwares being developed to be of use even without any coding knowledge or skills? Yeah, it's a very good question and, and one that pops up quite frequently. Uh, maybe just to quickly clarify, Clausebase is, is actually considered a low-code uh, platform, but but even so, you know, the, the question is, is still very much valid. I think it should be important to anyone setting out on a journey to learn how to code to consider exactly what it is that they're trying to achieve. Purely on the basis of the question, should you learn to code? I mean, obviously, it's it's a huge boost to you know your own mental capacity and to your own skill sets and and things like that. And and I think learning how to code can definitely change your brain for the better, so to speak. It can teach you how to think in a different way. But I'm also realistic about the time that young lawyers have to to really spend on that and to, the time to to really learn how to to get up to speed and, and become a good developer or a good coder when people start learning how to code there are often these grand expectations of being able to create your own app or a platform where certain legal services can be improved or, or can be can be altered in, in some way. And I think uh, a dose of realism is necessary there. Uh, learning how to develop software is one thing, but there's also the issue of distribution and there's also the issue of hosting. And there's just so much that comes into play whenever you are trying to create something, to create a product by, by way of software development, um, that just learning how to code, just knowing how to build that is, is typically insufficient. And so, yes, it can be highly valuable and I would recommend it to anyone who has the interest and the time, um, but I would also caution you to be realistic in what it is that you're trying to achieve. And maybe before you set out on this grand journey, so to speak, of uh, trying to create the next big app or the next big legal tech tool to consider all the different kinds of knowledge that you would need and, and knowing that, that just coding will not be sufficient to uh, create the entire thing. Thank you so much for that, Zena. Um, just taking a step back from the discussions we've been having, I think we can both agree that legal industry, when compared to other industries, have been far slower to adopt uh, new technologies. For example, with the banking industry, um, obviously the adoption of online banking software is a widespread framework we are seeing across a lot of countries. What do you think are the reasons behind this trend for a slower adoption of technologies in the legal industry? I think uh, it's it's a combination of different elements, right? I already touched upon the billable hour. If you're not beating around the bush, then you would essentially say that it rewards inefficiency. I think that's a little bit harsh, but you could make the argument that you know there's no real need to be innovative. There's no real need to be efficient if you're be, if you're charging by the hour. So that definitely plays a role, you know. Um, but also the uh, monopoly or the situation prior to maybe a couple of years where there was still very much a, a huge monopoly on legal services by by law firms uh, like i mentioned earlier those have been lessened those restrictions have been lessened in recent years somewhat uh, but of course it takes time for any major shifts to occur on that front and so yeah as long as long as you're being paid by a model that rewards inefficiency 
as long as there are no real outside threats and as long as competition is manageable because of course you know there's competition between law firms uh but typically not to that extent where you know it, it kills different kinds of firms or, or anything like that of course firms go under uh, all the time but um there is this there is this balance that has been achieved there i think outside competition will definitely be a, a much bigger challenge to deal with so yeah um i think those are probably the main reasons why the legal industry has been lagging behind but i'm I'm fully aware that it is a, a compound sort of thing, that there's all sorts of different factors at play. These are just two of the ones that, uh, in my opinion, play a big role. Would it be correct to say that the COVID-19 pandemic has had a comparatively minimal impact on the development of legal tech platforms? And on a second note, has there been any push for law firms to adopt legal technology, especially at a time where profitability and cost efficiency is far more crucial? Yeah, I think that the types of technology that were being pushed, so to speak, by the COVID pandemic were, of course, the kinds of technologies that were necessary to bridge some of the issues that were created by the COVID pandemic. I think to, to give you a very basic example, uh, nobody was allowed to come to the office anymore. Working from home was mandatory. And so, of course, you need different communication tools tools that may in the past have all maybe only been used in the margins or maybe haven't been used all that frequently, um, may now have become more widely adopted even by those, let's say, layers of the, the firm that, that may not have, have been as inclined previously to adopt them. So I think um, Microsoft Teams or Zoom or Slack or, or whatever tool you use for, for internal communication will uh, likely have, have seen an uptick in its use. I think for most general legal technology, because, you know, depending on, on your choice of definition for legal technology, that wouldn't really be considered uh, legal technology. For, for more general focused legal technology tools, um, I don't think that there's been this huge uptick of the amount of lawyers using them. I do think, however, that there has been a generally more accepting attitude towards technology, right? This lack of innovation has always been something that law firms were able to justify in, in, in to a certain extent and, and were able to keep that wave of innovation at bay. But the COVID pandemic did away with that. The COVID pandemic essentially said there's no choice anymore. You have to adopt certain technology if you want to continue working in a somewhat normal way. And so firms survived that. There was no great culling. There was no, uh, you know, huge problems that occurred there. Of course, the, the, the transformation programs from time to time were challenging, but I think a lot of different trends, I think that there's actually quite a few reports that showed that the legal services sector as a whole came out of the pandemic better than before. So the law firms grew on average uh, during the lockdowns and during the, the pandemic. So I think with the the pandemic having occurred, with this, this forced push towards uh, adopting certain technology, I think there has been this opening of the minds, this sort of um, new attitude that has been created that is a lot more conducive to, to legal technology adoption, a lot more open to it. But of course, the technology still needs to prove itself, right? Um, and so 
you know there's 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 maybe a more open attitude towards adopting but uh, it's it's uh, to a large part it's still on the firm itself and on the legal technology providers of course to make sure that actual value is being created and that actual adoption is is prioritized thank you so much for that answer um, now moving on to our final question, could you please elaborate on how ClauseBase stays ahead of the competition in this sector? Document automation is typically uh, fairly saturated as a market, so there's there's a lot of different players um, active in the document automation sphere. I think one of the most important ways in which we try to set ourselves apart is purely on the merits of the product. So to give you an indication, the clause-based approach to document automation, as opposed to the template-based approach, which I explained earlier, is not new necessarily, but I do think that clause-based takes it to a previously unseen level. But aside from that, what we also focus on is something that you rarely see in, in most other products, which is the fact that, you know, sometimes drafting needs to occur in just more than English. Uh, you'll see that a lot of different tools have this very Anglo-Saxon focus with the US and the UK, understandably being you know, the, the primary target markets for these tools. We at ClauseBase are all former Belgian lawyers and Belgian lawyers occasionally have to draft in three different languages. Uh, we have a, a Dutch speaking part of the country. We have a French speaking part of the country. And if you work at an international firm, you occasionally also have to uh, work in English. And that's something that we try to insert into our tool as well. So uh, clause-based features, deep grammatical multilingual support. So that, for example, if you, if you say, okay, you know, we're, we're closing a purchase agreement and you have one purchaser or two purchasers, if you indicate that difference, then clause-based will automatically make the appropriate grammatical adjustments for you, not just for English, but for a host of different languages. So I think currently we're up to 23 different languages, uh, including, you know, the obvious ones like Dutch, French, English, German, Spanish, uh, Italian, but also less obvious languages like Chinese, Arabic, Japanese, uh, and so on. And so those are those are some some focal points that we've included in our tool that we haven't really seen in 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 any other tools. And the list could obviously go on and on. But I think to just to summarize, the way that CloudBase tries to stay ahead of the competition is by trying to create um, an incredibly powerful tool that can handle all of the legal complexity that um, is typically embedded into a lot of legal documents or a lot of uh, clauses in, in those documents. Yeah, that's interesting. I think 23 languages is quite a lot of languages to boil down. Um, but thank you for that. And I think um, that wraps up our discussion about legal technology today. So thank you so much, Senna, for coming on to Kip Speak. And thank you for everyone who's tuned into our discussion. Yeah, thank you very much, June, for having me. If you're interested in learning more about Clause-Based and legal tech, make sure to register for our upcoming Clause-Based Crash Course event hosted by Senna himself. It's a two-hour accredited course taking place each week over a four-week duration where you get to enjoy an exclusive walkthrough of the possibilities offered by Clause-Based. Attendees who complete the full course will have the option to receive a signed Clause-Based certificate as well as a lifelong free personal account. And if you enjoyed listening to today's episode, please consider subscribing to our podcast, Kip Speak, where we'll be making more student-created content on the world of legal tech, innovation, intellectual property, and more.
This has been another episode of Kids Speak. We hope you've enjoyed this session. Join us as we strive to become the Lawyer 2.0, one who is resilient in the face of disruption and innovative in an era of rapid change. Find out more by visiting us at kipsock.com. That's K-I-I-P-S-O-C dot com.